You're listening to The People's Architect, a podcast series brought to you by Crawford Architects, where we explore how to connect people through innovative design that both benefits the client and the community at large. In addressing the needs of these various different entities that are involved in a P3 model, how do you manage the expectations between the public and the private sector? My take on that, Devin, is really that it starts from the inception of the concept. And we certainly hear a lot in our industry about the importance of strong, capable advice. In many cases, P3s will be the first time that agency is ever undertaking something in that form and fashion. And so making sure that the actual concept meets some key criteria for P3 viability is a very important part of setting something up for success. There are some key industry tools that are used around business case analysis and value for money analysis that have fairly tried and tested methodologies behind them. But ultimately, one of the key success factors that we've seen projects fail or succeed, the difference has been around uh, the identification of a champion and a sponsor of the project within the public sector agency and them having the appropriate political support and will to be able to drive, in essence, internal change management. So the public sector has very well-worn muscle memory for how they do things. When we step out of the norm into a new way of delivering something, one of the key challenges and constraints is how well that agency can adapt to do something for the first time. And so it really takes a very vocal and visible leader within the agency to be able to drive a concept from kind of normally a fairly broad idea, convert that into a a more structured concept in order to then get that to procurable project. Ultimately, bad advice or misguidance on project definition, risk sharing, all the kind of technical details that that flow from there can really set a project up to fail from day one. And that includes things like understanding what are the private players looking to do? What is their motive? In many cases, there will be opportunities that come to market where the public sector is misguided in thinking or or scaling the value that they believe can be unlocked from a given opportunity. So having some real hard quantifiable assessments of the value creation, as well as what is the appetite for risk sharing versus risk shedding, really can get to a far more foundation, strong foundation to develop a successful project. I continue to advise people who are entering, dipping their toe in the P3 space that the P3 world really requires you to have the dedication to really achieve four to five projects inside an individual project. You know, there's four horizons on a P3 deal that you have to be constantly thinking about. about. The first is to get the market engagement and interest. The second is to actually compete or procure your partner. The third is to actually get to close. The fourth is to develop the project. And the fifth is to actually get into service commencement and operation. And yet, if you think sequentially about these things, 
you'll likely miss the target on all of those you know longer term horizons and so there's so much front-end thinking that has to be achieved that ultimately a successful formula for any given agency is going to be being realistic at outset and getting the right advice from the right parties who have been there and done that to help understand what they don't know yet about what they have to put into a deal to be successful. Yeah, I think getting that advice early, Adam, Mal, David, is important. A lot of clients don't realize that. Like a lot of people that I bump into at various conferences that think they have a P3 project, they really don't. It doesn't really fit the mold. It, it's either been ill thought out. So all the necessary pieces for success, you know, are just not aligning either sequentially or at all. They're just not there. So a group that comes together early and helps a client body define what the project is that best suits the mold of a P3, that's a critical service. I mean, but many times, for example, you'd remember, Adam, the reason that we came together early in our career at UC Merced was over a, a process that had quite a few flaws built in already. And they were going down a procurement path that probably wasn't going to get them where they needed to be. So fortunately, it was at a point where it could be salvaged and, and that ship needed not to be turned around, but just needed to be shifted in direction a little bit. Other times, there is a missing ingredient. You mentioned a champion. You know, I'd, I'd also call it political will. Uh, sometimes the idea for a P3 comes from within an organization like a government department, but there's nobody within that department above that person that has the knowledge, the one that's been to the, the seminars, that's been to the conferences, the person that actually believes in this new approach doesn't have anybody above them in the hierarchy that really digs it <laughs> or gets it or understands it. Or within government, there's a lack of connection between the executive branch and the legislative branch. In other words, you've got the politicians that would love to see this project in their backyard, but there's really nobody within government in the administrative side, the executive side, that can, that can actually deliver it for them. So there's this disconnect. So this lack of expertise within the authoring agency it, it often exists here in the U.S., Whereas in Australia, I wouldn't mind Malcolm's opinion on how successful a couple of states have been because they actually have an office of public-private partnerships, an office of infrastructure development, whose sole job it is is to look at opportunities that could come along to satisfy the needs and goals of a state that is missing certain things. So there's whole offices set up just to deliver projects like this. Yeah, I, I recall my time in the US. It was I, I used to describe it as the, the process of twinkling the eye to getting to a close is in the US is not for the faint-hearted. That journey is is it, it is risky, and I think the you know back to the original question, sort of project definition, the nature of that relationship. You know, for me, when I was in the US, one of the key filters was, you know, is there a real need for this project and can the private sector really deliver value for this project beyond just capital? And Because at some point in the process, that, that's going to be going to be questioned. But to, to Stacey's point in Australia, you know, particularly in the larger eastern seaboard states, Victoria and New South Wales, there are 
specialist P3 procurement agencies within government who bring the expertise to be able to, um, to identify suitable projects and then to be able to manage procurement processes in a, in a highly disciplined and structured manner, which gives bidders certainty, which gives bidders you know, clarity over timelines and hence can put a, a, you know, a cost on what the bid is likely to be and, and ultimately de-risk the procurement process for the private sector, which ultimately translates into much better value for the public sector in Australia, depending upon the, the nature of, of the asset or the, the sector, there is in fact a, a filter where the, the, the public sector has to, you know, in the business case development of projects, determine whether a project should be done as a P3 or should be done privately. And, and, and so these days in Australia, it's much less about political will and, and much more about the politicians having put in place processes and and governance frameworks and agencies that that are skilled in you know identifying evaluating and then you know running procurements for these projects so it's significantly de-risked and we have you know very clear visibility on a pipeline you know extending a couple of years out which, which allows the private sector to you know manage itself well and identify the projects it's going to go for and, and how to resource up appropriately Amazing, thank you. Yeah, that that pipeline is an important consideration because a couple of reasons. One, obviously, once you've done something like this, you'd like to keep doing it, right? You have a team in place, you have a whole business entity that your corporation has, you know, seen as a, a great opportunity for business growth, and you want to keep your job, right? <laughs> and you want to keep making money, and you want to keep progressing yourself. So having a pipeline is really good, you know, for for businesses like yours, Malcolm, Adam, David. You know, to identify well into the future opportunities as they as they come along. One of the issues that we've got here, I believe, in the US is that there is no such pipeline. It's very, very spotty. It's almost like if you've got this skill set, you've got to wildcat the opportunities. You kind of got to go around and find where they are yourself. You've got to continually go to conferences. You've got to badger people, hound people. Actually, sometimes you have to come up with unsolicited offers. You have to find the you have to identify the project yourself. You have to go find the opportunity within government, within a city, you know, within private enterprise, and pitch it. Uh, and and in Australia, that happens too. In fact, they encourage that, right? These un, that you can actually bring an unsolicited offer to government agencies and not fall foul of procurement through you know monopolistic or you know other definitions of you've got information that nobody else has so you're you know you're at a biased situation and biased position whereas if you have a great idea and the government will only let you bring that idea forth if it's shared amongst other competitive bidders then what's the point of having a great idea if you've got to give it out to everybody else so there's quite a mature approach to that in Australia and I guess in other countries that I haven't seen yet you know, in in the US, like I said, it's a bit like you've got to just keep mining the separate opportunities here, and it's very hard to actually to strike a vein of of an, an horizon of projects that you can kind of bank on. I'd, I'd be interested here, Adam's perspective, because you know, coming from Australia, Europe, and now seeing what it means to be successful here, Adam, have you? seen the pipeline so to speak of projects manifesting or is it still fairly similar? yeah i mean i i think the true statement is true that we have a very fragmented market in the us and that's just by nature of 
the constitution and the way the layers of government work. There is no, by design, real joint up thinking. The Holy Grail, as I've observed around the world, is really the work of Infrastructure Ontario in Canada, where, you know, I used to be quite resentful of my colleagues sitting in Canada who got this wonderful Excel spreadsheet fully detailed of their deal pipeline, you know, years in advance. So that said, that did create a competitive field and has led to a, a level of commoditization in the Canadian market for that higher density deal volume. But, you know, the US, it's kind of, we're still in a, a Wild West type environment where if you can find the opportunity and develop the opportunity with a client, you know, there's really very little competition to compete with. And so whilst the deals are harder to find, the opportunities that stem from those tend to be far more broad and programmatic with those clients because you really have to work with them as a partner, even as a consultant. That's like a, you know, the filter that Malcolm mentioned around project screening and whether something should tip into a P3 or not. You know, that's really the, the outcome of the consultant world in the US today because there is an absence of that type of infrastructure that, of course, creates more work for those of us selling advisory services, but ultimately, you know, there's there's trade-offs. The fact that there isn't a heavily regulated framework means that we can really customize the way that that client wants to develop their concept into a, a project and take it to market. It has meant that there's been some relatively innovative ways that projects have bundled uses like central plant renewals with housing, backlog maintenance, remediations, and come up with some fairly unique hybrid deals. I do imagine that if there was more standardization, it would be somewhat harder to achieve that more entrepreneurial innovation. But overall, I think, you know, if we focus on asset categories, there is a relative pipeline that you can identify of P3 worthy states, P3, you know, experienced states, and that can tend to help generate key understandings of where the best ideas are going to come from and where there may be some reliable opportunities. California stands out there for obvious reasons. States like Maryland have pioneered recently bundled elementary and middle schools for the first time. Again, something Australia has been doing for a long time. But I think the industry itself is recognizing the need to come together, share information, do more coordinated outreach and education of public agencies. And that comes through in groups like the American Institute for Infrastructure, AIAI. And I think all of us who are in this space and have developed the, the niche skills to, to work in P3 see the benefit of giving something back to help ungum some of the 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 structural deficiencies in the way that the US market operates today. You can certainly say from 2015 to now, there's a lot more deals being brought to the surface. Remains to be seen whether those deals are quality deals because our, our level of financial closes being achieved on an annual basis is a little changeable. One of the, and this is never gonna change, but what one of the structural features that the Canadian and the Australian market is is very similar in is we, we have state governments who have responsibility for for housing 
for health, for education, for judiciary, for surface transportation. Whereas in the US, a lot of those responsibilities for infrastructure delivery are, are dealt with at both state and county and city level. So you don't have that concentration at a state level for, you know, for significant infrastructure procurement, you know, beyond just, you know, essentially road transportation in the US. So, so that's never going to change. That's just a feature of the, the different markets, unfortunately. Thank you all for that. So given the current state of P3, what do you see as the future for P3 procurement in the delivery of projects? Maybe I'll kick off and, and, and again, this, this will be, it's been 10, 12 years since I've really been in the US. So I'll offer an Australian perspective, which, which given the maturity of the market here may provide some forward looking view for, for the US as well. But what, what we're seeing now is, is that it's the scale of the projects has got enormously large the projects that we're doing are in the many many billions of dollars it's typically been the more complex projects that go down the p3 route and and that's partly related to risk transfer to the private sector but we're also seeing a, a significant refocus on on social infrastructure where the the public's focus is on service delivery outcomes beyond way beyond just what the asset delivers and so it, it, you know requiring effectively an operator to be involved in the p3 who has a responsibility for, for delivering you know a service outcome beyond just what the asset's capable of i i think we we see and i think there's been good experience of this in the us as well but but projects that it's not just about infrastructure it's also about value capture as well so if government is going to spend the a significant amount of money on a on a convention center or a, a hospital or even public transport. How does the the private sector capture the incremental value of that investment by way of you know commercial development close by and associated with it? The the integration of and David's you know I think doing a lot of work in this area, but and I think in the U.S. transit oriented development, but. But here, actually, you know, precinct scale development where, you know, government is taking a much broader perspective on I ensuring that that transport is is not just a way to get from A to B, but it's actually creating nodes of economic activity, housing and, and social benefits. So it's that the, there's a real layering of opportunity in, in the projects that we're looking. And, and you'll notice that in none of what I just said, it's really about raising capital. It, it's actually about delivering, you know, outcomes that, that, that the community and society, you know, you know, need higher quality outcomes. Yeah, I, I would add into that that a couple of the the broader kind of situations right now in the U.S. do create, in some people's minds, a level of pause around P3, first of which being record levels of funding available from the federal government as a consequence of the infrastructure bill. Now, in the reality, all the benefits we've talked about from P3, more funding doesn't change that. <laughs> in fact, just sets us back a little bit in people's desire to investigate and understand P3. And so I've certainly expected a level of flattening on the P3 market front for the next five or so years in the US, just purely based on necessity being that 
master of all invention. At the same time, there are record levels of private investment, oversubscribed infrastructure funds, a desperate need to make ESG credible investments. And so there's so much liquidity that could really find great value in investing in social infrastructure, some of which Malcolm exemplified, that there's this absolute disconnect between some of the, the needs on the social front and the infrastructure front, and then the availability of resources is at a record high. And so there's this impasse, as I've come to term it, around how do we get good, credible, meaningful progress on defining good projects that then are credible investments because the money is there. The, the impasse is what our industry really needs to work on helping better develop knowledge, understanding tools and resources to get some of these systemic issues, societal issues converted into projects that can drive a social outcome. If we can crack that, the money will flow. And I think the more examples that can be put in place will really ramp up the overall volume long-term in the US because as much as everyone will want to put their own stamp on an idea, if they've seen another state be successful, they will very quickly look to try and replicate the benefits there because of that fragmentation of political power and decision-making. All right. Well, thank you all. We are slowly approaching our time limit. so. I would like to end on any final thoughts you would like to leave with our listeners. Well, I was going to ask, because I'm inquiring now that you've sparked in my mind, what in the new generation, what in, in the new deals, the new projects, and what is the, their, what will their fundamental DNA look like? Do you think, Adam, that, you know, what is the new beast that will be created out of this? So ton of money and not many good projects to go into because nothing new has been defined yet is kind of what I thought I heard you say. Yeah, so we're the the funding situation with the federal government is that we are trying to push more cash through existing channels to many programs that were already undersubscribed from a grants and funding standpoint because the bureaucratic challenges of getting the funding. So I believe that the project definition getting ideas to shovel ready is going to be the major constraint on the the promise of the infrastructure bill and the Infl inflation reduction act and so we will continue to see you know underspend on all of that committed funding and that puts the situation at risk because of the potential of a new president and so I think our industry is going to be challenged in this interim time period to really be able to get clear direction from public agencies on how they're going to fund and or finance aspects of their projects. I think on the maturity curve, the long-term view is good in the sense that, as Malcolm outlined, Australia's really got their head around the idea of being outcomes-based and being outcomes-based has inevitably led to having more operator-led deals in the social space, which I think ultimately the US needs to do enough DBFOMs and DBFMs to see the benefit in delivery before they then turn their attention to 
how do we get the long-term benefits in operation? And so I, I think we're going to take a continued tumultuous period of starts and stops and some successful projects, probably plenty canceled procurements uh, and probably quite a lot of hiatus around the, the, the promise of funding, but the lack of commitment on the federal funding side. And so I think there's going to be a lot of work to do, keep good projects moving through and getting them into the market. All right. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you all for joining us. Really appreciate your time, gentlemen. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to The People's Architect, brought to you by Crawford Architects. I think today we've learned a lot about P3, the ins and outs, the future, past, and present. Thank you for listening to this episode of The People's Architect. Be sure to subscribe to this series on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. To learn more about Crawford Architects, our mission, portfolio, and what it means to be the people's architect, visit our website at crawfordarch.com.